<clears throat> the uh, talk tonight is about done is what had to be done. <clears throat> There's a great um, monk uh, who is known to be fully enlightened in uh, from Thailand named Achan Mun, <coughs> who uh, had a really good friend, Luang Pu, uh, who was also known to become fully enlightened. And there's a, there's a long kind of conversation with him, but um, I wanted to read you part of what he said. Uh, and how what he said came about was that there was a, a monk that was traveling from monastery to monastery, and he, his behavior wasn't really that acceptable. And he kept getting uh, kicked out. He wasn't doing horrible things, but he was very uh, difficult. So um, he came to this monastery, and everybody expected Long Pu to uh, throw him out. And he said, um, whatever level a monk has reached, as far as I'm concerned, he's welcome to dwell here. As far as for me, I dwell with knowing. And then he was asked to explain that, like what, what is dwelling with knowing like? And he said, knowing is the normality of mind. So, you know, you just kind of take it in, the, the normal mind. Knowing is the normality of mind that is empty, bright, pure, that has stopped fabricating, stopped searching, stopped all mental motions, having nothing, not attached to anything at all. And sometimes these descriptions are so beautiful. You know, stopped searching. You know, stopped fabricating. Wise attention is usually described as the um, lack of embellishment. all mental motion stopped. So a lot of the talk tonight is about identification, which is really <laughs> when the mind is in motion. It's, it's not stopped, it's searching. It's, it's trying to control what can't be controlled. So just the sense of dwelling, you know, how we dwell in this world, how we inhabit, inhabit our bodies, um, is, is just interesting. We get a much closer look at that when we're on retreat. It's like we're looking in the mirror and, um, you know, we don't look in the mirror that much every day, right? But this is like looking in the mirror all day, every day, without a lot of distraction. The teen retreat that um, I taught in July in the Big Island, um, I described it had nine teenagers and a, a, a quite a diverse group of teens. And one I've known since he was 10 years old, and he, he's 16 now. Uh, and I encouraged him to come over from Honolulu, mainly because I thought he would be an interesting um, addition 
for most of the teens hadn't been exposed to mindfulness practice. Uh, and he started when he was 10. And it was just, he's just one of those interesting young per- people that um, I would show up to do a retreat, to teach a retreat in Honolulu, and it would be like a Monday afternoon. And uh, I'd look up and he'd be sitting there. And I'd take him aside after during the walking period, and I'd say, what are you doing here? Why aren't you in school? And he'd say, oh, I cut class today to come to the retreat. You know, and he did this for years, just years. Like, he'd just show up. I'd, look, I'd open my eyes, you know, in the afternoon sitting, and he'd be there, and I'd be like, what are you doing here? And he'd just huge grin. Oh, I cut school again today, so I couldn't be here. And, you know, I was just... Uh, so into this, so young. Um, so we started the retreat by people, you know, were supposed to just say their name, where they were from, and, you know, why they were there. And he was last. So people just said, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm from so, you know, I'm from such-and-such a place, and I'm here because. And then he said, I'm the last person, I'm, and he said, uh, and I live in the present moment. and most anyone else you'd almost get irritated with it you know it's like it's just so oh you know but for him it's so pure and so true and he's he's doing it you know just you know I wonder what will happen for him but you know he's just uh he keeps cutting class <laughs> to do It's very interesting, you know. So, but I, you know, the answer of this this enlightened being, you know, I dwell in knowing. He's and then this young man, I I live in the present moment, and we know when we do that, when we actually have a moment where we can say, "Am I all right right now?" If we're afraid and we can just ask, right now, in this moment, am I okay? Usually the answer is yes. And we get to see that we project so much onto the future from memories from the past that are just not happening in the moment. It's, it's just amazing. We usually fear the most what we've already experienced. So dwelling and knowing means that we're not caught up in the objects of the awareness. We're not caught up in the objects of knowing. And we're really not identified with the mind or heart, the knowing itself. We're not even identified with that as being me or I or mine. When we talk about like a mindful awareness, it's really an awareness that's free and that the awareness is flexible. So the awareness isn't like tied to what's happening. And this is critical because (laughs) it's like if we, again, get these glimpses of what that feels like, it's very motivating. We might be caught or hooked or whatever words we use, hooked, identified, unfree, you know, but it's, it's that sense that the experience is mine, 
it's perm you know it'll feel when something's really difficult it feels permanent we don't have that sense that it's impermanent that's why it, it's so painful so not dependent not possessive not hooked um, again it's an awareness that understands it's infused with wisdom or wise attention mindfulness This teacher, Sri Nazargadadan Maharaj, says that affectionate awareness is the crucial factor that brings reality into focus. So simple. So the crucial factor that brings reality into focus. Uh, when I was sitting in my early years of practice, um, one of my karmic body body uh, karmas is severe lower back pain, and it, it started when I was very young. Um, and it, you know, at that point in time when it started, I just had no context that it would be like a lifelong <laughs> karma. But at some point, I was reading some Buddha some texts, and there was a description of different kinds kinds of karma and some kinds of karma just don't last that long and some last throughout a lifetime so I, you know when i was reading this i read that the buddha had a bad back throughout his life that it lasted for his life it's a certain kind of karma and it was really helpful for me you know that that there wasn't some idea that getting you know awake and free from suffering meant freedom from body pain it was really helpful. In fact, I started the Bad Back Club. <laughs> you know? it, was, it was just fun to kind of get that sense that, oh, yeah, some karmas just last, some don't. Um, and at this time, because I was so young, I was 28, and um, I was going into a retreat, and there was a Sri Lankan monk named Sivali that had come to visit this retreat center uh, and he was old by uh, where he came from standard. I think he was 78, I was 28. And he died two weeks after this interview I had with him. Um, but I didn't know that that was what was going to happen. But here I was, 28, you know, having this lower back, it very excruciating lower back pain, but hadn't had it at all. Like it wasn't like I'd had it a long time, it was just started. And I was having trouble working with it, and I came in to see him, and I started describing what was happening, kind of getting that, oh, wow. You know, there was a part of me getting, wow, he must, you know, he's 78, he must have some stuff too. Uh, and then I described this whole thing, and he was very quiet, and then he looked at me with this huge, like, it felt like this huge, like luminous, radiant smile. But actually, it was probably very contained and sublime, but it felt the energy of it was so happy. And he said, Michelle, the body's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> and such peace, like just such utter peace with that just unconditional 
That's what equanimity is. It's this unconditional acceptance of how things are. Uh, and I can't tell you how helpful it was, but because for me, this lower back pain, you know, having this idea at that point that it was inconceivable to me at that age that I was going to have this, like, my whole life, right? I just, like, it was, it was not acceptable by any means, you know? And just, just like his relationship to the body, our bodies was so wonderful, you know? It was really healing to hear him say that. And, you know, there was, I struggled with that for some years, and then, interesting, it went away for a few years. And then when it came back, it was so upsetting to me that it came back. And I did a retreat, and this was the place I really felt like I understood freedom. Because any time we think we've gotten rid of something, and it comes back, how do we relate to it? Because if, if, if the awareness is free, there's no problem. But if we think we've gotten rid of something, we're not free. The idea here is that we're developing a relationship with what is happening, of being okay with it, right? So if, if we have a relationship with fear, that we're like getting skill with it, rather than trying to get rid of it, it's a whole different way of being. It's like the awareness is free. And there's like boredom, sleepiness, <laughs> perfect peace, fear, happiness, indifference. This is how it is. It's just this stream of change. And when we're taking it personally and thinking, you know, you know that we do it. It's like, aha. It's, it's gone, <laughs> you know, it's over, you know, and then it's like, and then maybe five minutes later it comes back, or five years later, but the whole trick is, oh, this is, the, this is hard for us to grasp what freedom really is, and are we in it for freedom, are we in it just to try to control? And of course we want to control. And that's, you know, why Jesse and I are like, there's that sense of with teaching, it's like you're presenting a context for that freedom is learning that there's very little that we can control about how things are happening. But it's also, we're also saying, of course, of course the little me, of course our little me wants to control. And learning to be able to go, oh yeah, of course I want that. It's okay. But, you know, it's probably not going to happen. Or it's not going to be healthy to go after this. It's probably going to be harmful. Or, yeah, that's a healthy thing to want. And I will work for it, but not be attached to the result of the work. It's kind of always, um, or kind of fun to, to watch children sometimes. Um, because they're so uncensored, you know, they're, they're, they're so much more transparent around what they want and what they don't want. Um, and this, this child I, d I described with the soccer game one time, around that same age, I think he was maybe eight at this point, um, and a friend of mine took him away from the house I was in, um, and it was just when video games came out, and his parents were probably the most wholesome people I know. You know, that there is no way 
they're going to let this kid have video games, right? This was years ago, though. But, you know, there, it's just like, this is just the type of parents they are. They're not going to ever let their kids have video games. But my friend, very mischievous friend, took this poor little eight-year-old and took him somewhere and showed him, had him up on his lap and showed him this game, Doom. It was called Doom. <laughs> I don't know that world, but it was, I guess it was a really good game and very compelling. And he had this kid away. Nobody knew it for hours, <laughs> like playing this game called Doom, you know, and <laughs> I knew something was up. I knew this friend was up to no good, but he like totally like did it on purpose. And this kid also knows that his parents, there's no way that they're going to let him have this game, right? But he wants to have the game. So I could see him like coming out of this room. I, could, I got the whole thing. I was like, oh my God, oh no. And so here he was leaving with his parents and he put his hand, you know how kids are, he put his hand in his father's hand and you know, was walking along and he said, Dad. And his father said, yeah, because his parents didn't know, you know, and he's like, um, do you think that you might be able to get me the game Doom? <laughs> but it's like his voice, you could hear it in his voice, you could hear like the total hopelessness about like that he knew he wasn't going to get it, but the hope, you know, that, just, that he had so much fun playing this game. And his father went, no. <laughs> and you could see his whole body just like went limp like with just like, oh, can't, can't have it. This, you know, there was no use fighting it. Um, but how compelling just this bit of time with this game was, you know. We know it. We see it, whether it's with like a, you know, some of the media. It's so um, compelling. And what we learn on retreat, when we kind of take ourselves away from it for a bit, we see that it really doesn't matter if it's a chocolate we're wanting, or a better sitting, you know, or like whatever it is that we're wanting, you know, it's like, can we unhook from the object of the wanting? This is, this is the place in the retreat where we have a chance to check it out. You know, we have enough time and space to see that, oh, maybe the awareness doesn't have to be hooked into this. And that there's a difference between pulling the projection back and feeling the experience of wanting separate from the object. Huge. Even if we get a glimpse of this once, it's the beginning of freedom. That's how powerful it is. And it's called the suffering that ends suffering. The Buddha called this the suffering that ends suffering. Because actually, when you consider how sensitive our eyes are, they're so sensitive. That's why, you know, nobody wants to be hit or hurt the eye because it's so delicate and sensitive. That's why we can see color and light and all the shadow. And, and then the ear, you know, the sounds and the smells and the tastes and our bodies, these are just such amazing instruments but the mind the heart this is called the mind door or the heart center or chitta consciousness consciousness means knowing it's the knowing that hearing is happening it happens here first what's so much fun is that neuroscience is starting to catch up with 
this understanding that sounds will happen here first before it goes up to be registered in the brain. Smell, taste, touch, all of this is is registered in the heart, mind first. um, Far more sensitive than the eyes. And we don't even, we don't, we just don't get trained in this. Yes, it's like we don't under, we don't know why it's so much easier to get fixated on what we want. In fact, if it's something we want, at least, usually it's something pleasurable. At least we're focused on something pleasurable. When it's, when we're not wanting something, when it's fear or anger, we're, we're totally hooked in something unpleasant. But either way, whether it's something we're not wanting or something we're wanting, if you let go of the projection and just feel the mind wanting it, it hurts like hell. That's why we don't do it. It's painful to want. And, you know, and it's, that's the mind that's moving. You know, it's like it's not satisfied. It's just, it just to be still and quiet is boring to us. You know, it, it, takes, it takes practice to just get a taste for that quiet. The refinement of it and the interest. So what Jesse and I are saying is that we can actually get interested in this movement of mind. We can get interested in the, the, the movement and the identification. And when your awareness of free is free and you can just be with it, it can be actually um, almost funny. <laughs> or sometimes, you know, quite funny. And it's, it's like tr- watching this little kid Nate go, Dad, <laughs> can I have the game too? You know, it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. We know what that feels like. The first time I got a pretty good glimpse of this was one time I was sitting um, in the winter in Massachusetts. And uh, I was sitting that 3.45 or 4 o'clock sitting. And there was a kind of contentment. Uh, you know, sometimes we use the word happy but or peaceful, but contentment is probably a more helpful translation. It's, it's like you're just not needing or wanting anything. You really aren't. It's not like fake. It's genuine. You just feel fine the way things are. Uh, and it's not based on pleasure or pain. So you've gone beyond the pleasure and pain syndrome. So there could be knee pain or not. There could be sadness or not. The awareness isn't chained to experience. And I, it was at the end of the sitting, and I was sitting there, and um, the tea bell rang. And this is the first time it had ever happened for me, because I'd always looked at, you know, my first retreat, I remember the bell would ring for the end of the sitting, and I had been there praying to Mary. You know, I'd brought back all my Catholic conditioning. I couldn't believe people could just sit there till the teacher rang the bell. I used to sit there praying that the teacher would ring the bell. It was, you know, we all know the first retreat. It's just like you think people are crazy. You know, I'd be staring at people who are looking like 
what is their problem? And you know, the, the first retreat I went to was a three-month retreat, you know, and, <laughs> it was 1975, you know, and I had no context for it, you know. I looked at the schedule when I got there, and it, you know, sit, walk, sit, walk, and at 7.30 it said talk. It didn't say Dharma talk. So I thought we got to talk. <laughs> really, it's the only reason I decided to stay. Really, I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh good, we can talk. You know, it's like, really? Oh, I had no idea what I got myself into. And I was with all these people who had been to India for years, and they all like walked slow, you know. And, you know, they never sped up. And it was totally weird. I thought I was in with a bunch of zombies, really. I, and, you know, I just kept praying to Mary. That was my background. So I was like, Mary, tell them to ring the bell. It's <laughs> <was> really funny. <laughs> so anyway, speed up a little bit, and I'm sitting there, and I actually, you can't make it happen. Actually, you know, something shifts, and I was actually totally content. And the bell rang, and I was like, oh, I'm not hungry. I don't need to go. And this lasted for quite a while, maybe half an hour. And just deep contentment. Ah, it was incredible. And then this is what happens. A little thought. I wonder what they're having for tea. Right? And that thought could have happened five minutes into that, and I, would have, I wouldn't have bought into it ten minutes. But what happens is the equanimity goes down, well, energy goes down, something shifts, and the contentment is gone, but you don't know it, and as a matter of fact, you're totally attached to this place, but you don't know it, right? <laughs> You've, you know, the equanimity has shifted, and then, you know, this thought, I wonder what they're having for tea, and within seconds, you know, loneliness, you know, missing everybody that I couldn't stand, you know, <laughs> 35 minutes before, you know, you just couldn't, they got up, and they moved, and they made noise, and they coughed, and they sneezed, and you, know, it's like, you can't wait till they get out of there, right? And then all of a sudden, you just can't bear to be without them, you know, it's just all in a few matter of seconds, and I'm, sitting there like this was the first time I'd ever witnessed this in myself and I'm like wow seconds of like from total peace to total misery and just like wow you know it was just amazing and just wanting wanting and luckily there was this dog that lived across the street and he started barking at the same time so there was like bark, 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 and it was like bark, 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 bark. <laughs> there was like bark, 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 and bark, 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 and I was like, hmm, wow, this is primal. It was just so primal, just this yearning and wanting, and it was the first time I got to see that it didn't matter what the object of it was. I didn't really want it. In those days, they measured out. It was pathetic. You got two tablespoons of peanuts. <laughs> really, they measured it, and they watched you. Like they, like somebody would look through the window, and you had a tablespoon, and it said two tablespoons of peanuts, and you'd be starving, and you'd be like, <laughs> and like, then you'd feel like you broke a precept, and you'd go back with like a tablespoon of peanuts. You know, those were the hard days, you know. So anyway. You know, it was just like I wasn't really missing that experience at all. And I, I was going through all of that and just started to get, oh, I don't have to buy into this. 
And actually, that, those moments where I got to see that I could be with this wanting without buying into it felt actually more liberating than the contentment. Interestingly enough, it was like, oh, this is where the work is. Even though I love that other space and I could get that, of course we all want that, but it's not like you're working hard there. It's like it's just everything is coming and going by itself. You see really clearly there. There's no you, no, no, no. I mean, everything is just as it is. In the Zen tradition, it's called suchness. It's the suchness of things. And it's, um, it's, it's just pure contentment. In this tradition, it's called holy equanimity. And it'll always feel like a kind of grace. It feels like a kind of grace because you can't make it happen. And you'll remember it. And what's different is that there's a genuine, um, there's such, there's such pure mindfulness <laughs> that there's no resistance to what's happening at all. So if thinking's happening, there's no resistance to it because you see clearly that you don't have to buy into it. It's just thinking. So a thought can come. <laughs> I wonder what's for tea. And you just, it's just thinking. You actually don't buy into it. So it's effortless. It's totally effortless, this grace and equanimity. And then when you feel it going, it's probably the most painful experience you can have as a human. Because you know that equanimity is the most sublime experience you can have as a human and be aware. The you know nibbana unconditioned the unconditioned there's no awareness with the the deep equanimity there's awareness. So the path from that point on is one of like learning how to deal with this. And again, everyone in this room has experienced a taste of this, or you wouldn't be here. And there's a kind of bittersweet quality to equanimity after some time because you always have that sense that you start to understand, oh, this is impermanent. And it doesn't feel like it should be. <laughs> there's something about it that feels like a totally different world than the world where we, we have that presence. There's the presence of wanting, and we buy into it, or the presence of aversion, and we buy into it. So the word ego is used a lot in the West, but if we defined it from this perspective, you would see that the ego is merely temporary moments where the, the heart center, the mind, the heart has, has um, grabbed onto something pleasurable that's already passing. We're wanting something to last, so it's like it hurts because actually it's already gone. That's what the ego is. It's the, the feeling of being a person, you know, a separate person, is when that, that grabbing happens. And you know, you know, this is part of the practice is getting to know, oh, this is when Michelle appears. And the same with aversion or fear. It's like it's when pain comes and it's, it's already there, but we're not able to deal with it. We're pushing it away. That pushing away or the withdrawing from it, that's what you would call an ego. It's temporary moments of believing these thoughts around this experience. And I mean, I could give, 
I'm giving examples, but I could give a million examples. You know, it's just, this is, you know, sadness might appear for me, you know, and I'm going along. And actually, sadness is probably something I have some skill with. And usually, um, still, there's that word still, but I'll find myself at first going, why are you sad? You have nothing to be sad about. And then my conditioning is pretty brutal. There's thought, like my father's voice is, I'll give you something to be sad about, right? Wow, right? Like, it's like all of this resistance, right? You shouldn't, the, the, the underlying unconscious assumption is, is that this is not a worthy experience and that it should be gone already. And why, you know, we have to have a really good reason to be sad. And even then, we'll give ourselves a few seconds. I mean, if somebody dies in your family or somebody you really love, it's just, you know, usually after, you know, a few months, people expect you to be right back on the, you know, ship and just moving along. And, you know, whenever any somebody dies in my family, I always you know, milk it for everything I can get. You know, it's the only time people cut you any slack, you know. And they don't cut it to you for very long. You know? It's like two months later, my mother died. You know, it's like, so? You know, what, are you still upset? You know, it's a strange culture, yeah? So, of course, we learn this relationship with mostly emotion. And emotion is compassion, loving kindness, appreciative joy, equanimity, and indifference is an emotion. And here we are, somebody's indifferent outside of ourselves, or we're indifferent, and we, we like start attacking it, like, open up! You know, and it's like, are you kidding me? We're in, you know, we've shut down because we're on overload. And we need kindness, compassion. It's an emotion. People think it's not an emotion because it's like there's no feeling. But actually, there's a lot of feeling that went into the shutdown. A lot. Probably more than the people that are very emotional. So these are all protections. And the impulse is, to, again, to, to say to oneself, the, the witness, the unwise witness will be doing this whole controlling thing where it's like, why are you indifferent? You know, it's like, just listen to yourself. It's amazing. It's like, what are you angry for? You know, you shouldn't be. All this, like, you should, you should, you shouldn't, whatever. And that honesty of being able to go, oh, acceptance. That's when you feel like something has shifted. It's like, oh. Sadness. Oh, I don't have to talk myself out of this. In fact, it's okay. And you can be sad for no reason. In fact, especially on retreat, I find that, you know, it's um, having been from the north and, uh, you know, those long melancholy sunsets in the winter that just seem to last forever. It's like that's where I kind of learned a kind of, um, almost like an uncaused sadness or an uncaused melancholy um, and to just be okay with it. So we're asking 
you to bring two very different kinds of attention together. And it will always seem paradoxical. So, for example, if there's sadness, we're asking you to connect with the sadness, but not drown. To connect, but not get lost. And that will seem paradoxical. So the, the way we usually learn to witness is for the attention to kind of pull back and pull out, to open up and go, oh, to recognize it, oh, sadness. But then we'll ask you to go, oh, sadness, and then see if you can get below your neck and actually start to feel your body, even if you don't feel anything. Just ground it, because the thoughts sweep us away. No matter what, you know, whether it's anger is classic for thoughts sweeping us away. You know, we blame and we blame and we blame. We feel right, we feel right. It's the nature of it. And rather than fight that, it's just learning to go, oh yeah, ha ha ha, feeling right. Feeling right an hour later, still feeling right. But I haven't felt the anger. I haven't, when we at, say directly experience, it's just like emotion is probably the hardest to directly experience. When you hear the course of our instruction, it's, it's like some people will teach emotion before they teach the body or before they teach thinking. But actually, emotion includes thinking, usually. And it will include our body sensations, usually. But that's an overgeneralization. Sometimes an emotion will just happen as just a light whisper of a thought. Just just a light thought. And other times, (laughs) it can be like a volcano going off. If If it's on the side of unpleasant emotion rather than pleasant, I usually try to just go, ow. You know, E.T.? Ow. Ow. You know, it's just like, let this hurt, let it be the instrument that it is. This is from Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj. The question to him was, pain is not acceptable. And he said, why not? Did you ever try? Do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. Painful when resisted, joyful when accepted, pleasure and pain, accept both as they come. So I find for a lot of us, you know, it's like my, my early years, again, in practice, it's like sound for me is a heaven and hell, you know, experience. It's like I'm just very super sensitive to sound. Um, so, you know, if I get to listen to birds, it's like I'm in heaven. If I'm listening to a jackhammer, you know, it's hell. 
and I had to learn how to understand this. It took a lot of time. And the first time I really got it was a, it was a three-month retreat with Upandita, who's a very hard teacher on me. Um, and he made this rule for all of us that we had to all sit in the hall the first month of this three-month retreat. And most of us wanted to kind of go sit in our rooms, but he made us sit in the hall. And I asked him why, and he said, because you're old students and um, you should help the new students. You should be sitting with them. Don't go off by yourself. It was really sweet. Um, so I had this person next to me um, that was kind of new. And um, Sayada Upandita introduced this form where we would write in a notebook a few things down so that we could tell him what our experience was. And the idea was is that you didn't write down your experience in the hall. So you had your little notebook, and at night before you went to bed, you were supposed to write a few things. And the woman next to me used to write during the sittings. And, uh, you know, a week went by, two weeks went by, and she had a pencil. That was the crime. <laughs> it wasn't a pen, it was a pencil, right? And I'm like super sensitive, right? And like, you know, you're, you're all supposed to see the whole thing about for me with humans is that when they're not doing what they're supposed to do is when the aversion will come up, right? Like if they're, if they're being obedient according to my, you know, God, right? God says, God says if they sneeze, well, okay. If they sneeze 300 times, that okay. You know, we have all these rules, right? You know, the judge, the judge. Um, so this person... <laughs> wrote, I would say, almost constantly, and it was, it was like, you know, like, and then just like, moving, and then, and as the weeks went by, it felt like, you know, <laughs> you know, and I would just be like, I started going into a sweat, like, really, I would just, like, my jaw would be just, I would actually got to the point where I was, I'd be waiting there for her to come in the hall, really, just, I'd just be like, <laughs> it was like a war, you know, it's just like I'd see her come in and the sweat would just come over to, like hoping like something happened to her. It was horrible. It was horrible. And I just like I couldn't relax ever. Like I'd just be waiting for her to pick up the pencil and get it get it over with, right? Just like get over that sitting and then just like be totally wasted. <laughs> like weeks of this just horrible 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 just hating that pencil I even tried you know I was I can be bad you know I'd like I'd put a pen there and then I'd you know she'd start coming and I'd put the pencil back and I'd be like and I'd just like I'll get through this somehow you know ardency <laughs> ardency was going up and down <laughs> and finally one day I was just like oh. and this is what happens it's like okay there was enough energy, enough mindfulness, and it's like, what does this sound? What is this sound? And this being was feeling so separate. That, you know, when we're aversive, we feel so separate, and that's why we're in such pain. And so I just let the sound touch my ear door, and it was unpleasant for me. You can't make unpleasant sounds or unpleasant anything pleasant, but you can start accepting that texture is unpleasant and that it's okay. And this was a huge, again, these moments, you can't make them happen, but just allowing that texture and not getting it entangled with, she shouldn't be doing this, right? 
you know, those are very, they're totally unrelated. Totally unrelated. It's like some body sensations happens in your body, right? And it's like, my knee, my pain. And again, it's like we feel so in war with it. And then maybe the next sitting there's enough energy and interest and maybe we can go, hmm, tight. Oh, it's just tight. It's not mine. You know, and it's, this is this is these moments. They don't happen all day. You know, it's like these are huge achievements. They happen suddenly, but as Srina Zargadatta says, with long preparation, you kind of go along, you go along, and then something shifts. It's like an opening. It's like we're interested, we start accepting, and we feel free in those moments. So purity, purification. When mindfulness, energy, interest, equanimity are there, we have these glimpses and gli- How did that resolve for you? Pardon? How did that resolve for you, the relationship? Oh, with that sound? Oh, sometimes when, uh, this is good, because this is where I'm going. When mindfulness, energy, interest, those those impersonal factors are present, we, we can work with more clearly with what's going on. And when we're tired and the mindfulness or the equanimity goes down, we can't work as well with it. And that's what I, after that experience, I kept seeing, you know, a month went by, another month went by, and I could see when I had this purity of awareness, the sound was totally okay. And then it would go, and I'd be at war with it again. And I would take that so personally. I would just go down, and I'd think, oh, you know, I'm no good at this. Like, I would take it so hard. And you go through these enough times, and finally it was like, oh, I just can't see clearly. You see? It's like it's a process. But over time, I would say, I got very free with that. Like, it just, it just, I started being able to just be with that sound and not have a problem with it. And that's, that's also what I've been trying to say, that as I learned to do it with that, then I started to be able to do it with the aversion itself. It's like the, the disliking um, is another whole process, right? That's the mind that you, you need to learn how to be with. So, so you learn to do it with easy things. That's why we're saying, is sound a good anchor, or is the body a good anchor, or is the breath a good anchor? We, we need to start somewhere, and then you start being able to have this ability to shift to other things. But to remember that in the course of like 10 minutes, or an hour, or a day, you're going to have times when things are, for better lack of a word, they're, they're easier, they're more effortless, there's a kind of purity and even if you had mindfulness for one second, or metta, loving-kindness, that is like taking warm, soapy water and putting a dirty cloth in it and the dirt coming out. It's like you want this dirty cloth to get clean or you wouldn't put it in the warm, soapy water. So a retreat is warm, soapy water. <laughs> And, you know, the times when you think, oh, it's going great. It's like when I could, could, you know, when we can work with something and we're like, wow, great. It's like, and then we plan, right, the next retreat, 
you know, we're, we, we're usually on a roll and we usually plan something next. Um, and then it can shift like that. That's what I'm saying. And then I call that part purification, where that's usually when we get to see more clearly wanting or not wanting. And people want to get rid of that overnight rather than learn how to work with it. You can't get free of desire and greed if you can't be with it. And we wonder why the world, it's like I think that the world is so disappointing in a way. You know, it's like the more open you get, the more you will be sensitive to greed, hatred, and delusion in yourself and others. And you'll start to see that, oh, the world is like this because when people are motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion, they harm. And we'll see it. We'll see it in ourselves. Hopefully we get to see it here. How, you know, if you, if you practice long enough, you can't judge anybody. You just can't. Because you see yourself in it. Um, I mean, that's a whole other talk, but um, teaching many long three-month retreats over the years, um, the, the, the places on a retreat where people tend to get <laughs> in wars with each other are around windows or around, you know, lights, lighting, or, you know, you're not here long enough to really start really irritating each other but it happens, you'll already do it. But like if you get a three-month retreat, after a few weeks, people forget about home more. And they're kind of, their world becomes the, the retreat. And there was this place on this, at this place where there was a, um, it was an old novitiate. And there was an old bowling alley in, in the basement. And, you know, of course we took the, <laughs> the pins, you know, the candle pins out and the bowling balls out. But there was still this long bowling alley. And the place wasn't picked up. It was a basement, and um, there was just a bare light bulb hanging down in that whole area. And especially in the winter, people, a lot of people would go down there and do walking meditation. And, um, you know, every three-month retreat, after a couple of weeks, maintenance, somebody in maintenance would come to me and say, Michelle, where are all the light bulbs going? Where are all the light bulbs going? Well, people who didn't want light you know, they just wanted a little, there was a little lamp in the corner. They would take the light bulb. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's just an example. It's like, you can't believe it, but, and then the windows. We used to have endless meetings. I mean, I can't even tell you how many meetings I've been in that place around how the, how the windows should be open. And we would even announce it, announcements every morning, please, please. <laughs> just leave the windows this way, you know, when you come in the hall, just leave them this way. And even Sayada Upandita, he said, when you come in the hall, if the window's open, just leave it open. And, you know, to him it was very simple. <laughs> and if the window's shut, just leave it shut. No, it doesn't work. You have to have a policy in the West, you know, a policy. <laughs> and even then, it's like people will like want to have it the way they want it. Of course, you see, this is what we have to understand. But when you live with each other, it requires give and take. It's very interesting. So you get to see what I'm trying to say is you get to see um, the source of war. 
or the source of addiction in your own heart. That's the point. And the point is, the purpose of meditation is peace. The purpose of meditation is this, uh, this awareness that doesn't have to get caught, in, caught into it. So I guess I'll, to finish this, um, each moment of consciousness is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is a given. So we have seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. Thinking is happening all the time. We don't like that. You know, we keep thinking if we meditate long enough, <laughs> thoughts are going to go away. It's more that you get so that they're not bothering you. Hearing is happening all the time. You know, it's seeing is happening all the time. But on top of this, and this, we're not making this up. With each moment of consciousness, like when seeing happens, there's also a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral mental feeling that happens with that moment of seeing gone. Then maybe a sound happens, and it's like pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and it's gone, and that's mental. So it could be that there's a <laughs> sensation in the cheek, and it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, gone. So each moment of consciousness is taking birth and dying. Therefore, they say, you know, that each moment we're taking birth and dying. Each moment of consciousness. Um, this is a very vulnerable world. When we talk about a stream of change, this is what's going on. So when we say um, done is what had to be done, or the suffering we go through to end suffering, it's really understanding that that's a given. This is our human birthright. We've taken birth into that world. And then what are we going to do about it? (laughs) And so what we do is because the untrained mind, this is a training, the untrained mind, of course, when, when pain arises, of course we don't want it. We push it away. But because that's not the truth of how things are happening, and that in actual fact, if you investigate what's going on, it could be a thought that's unpleasant. We don't have to buy into it. If it's a physical sensation that's happening, we don't have to buy into it. If it's an emotion, we don't have to buy into it. So freedom is choice. Freedom is that choice where we can either go with something or not. And, you know, of course, we would want that. Uh, Hence, um, there's a chant that I really love a lot. Um, It's it's this this way of chanting it is Thai, but it means... um, All conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this is the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. So here in this chant, they're they're translating, they're trying to translate the happiness being is peace, or this contentment. Um, I wanted, you know, there's a lot I wanted to try to cover, but um, 
to remember compassion, you know, there's a, there's, it's just um, when you realize what each of us have taken birth in, and it's not just us, it's birds. We're all doing this, you know. <laughs> it's like this fly. It's like all beings who take birth on this planet, in this universe, like have to deal with this impermanence and the dukkha and the, you know, it's, it's, um, when you, again, get what we're born into and what it takes to understand this, to be free, we, we just have more and more compassion. So if we're not aware of pleasure, then there's liking. And if we're not aware of that liking, then usually there's um, enjoyment. And if we're not aware of that enjoyment, it'll lead to clinging. And if we're not aware of that clinging, it leads to craving. If, it, if we don't understand that craving, it leads to addiction. And we all have aspects of that in ourselves. So the practice is one of like, if enjoyment is happening, it's not to go like that. It's to go, oh, enjoyment. Can I learn how to be with this and not take it personally? This is a great time to do it with these leaves, with this weather. It's like, if you see some beauty, rather than get lost in it, you learn how to go, oh, pleasant, liking, enjoyment, and not get caught into wanting it to last. Yeah. You see the roots of the craving and the clinging and the suffering in the moments of clinging to beauty. And that we're a good sitting. And then with unpleasant, it can go unpleasant, dislike. We're not aware of the dislike, frustration, annoyance, irritation, not aware of that. Then the next, you know, it just, it's just increasing reactions to fear, anger, terror, rage, war. You know, this is, this is the human predicament. Neutral, <laughs> boredom, confusion, indifference. You know, it's like the heart goes numb. But it's a, cho- it's a choice. It just, these things aren't just happening. These are reactions because we're not aware of this pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral changing stream of, of life. <laughs> so, of course, you know, yes, you know, when we, when we start to understand this, it takes a certain kind of patience and pace. Um, when I first got involved in this practice, and that first time I did the retreat, uh, I didn't go back for three years because it was just, <laughs> you know, it was just so overwhelming to me. And I went back into my life and uh, I just was too much. I couldn't, I just couldn't face it. And then I went back for a retreat and it was like, oh, you know, I got, I, I, I knew, I knew I would take next steps and next steps, but there, there was also a, a very careful consideration of each time I took another step, it, it got more like, oh, <laughs> wow, I'm really getting into this. This is like, there were certain places where it was like, oh, there's no turning back from this. This is really what I want. I really want to be free. And I, could, I kept seeing the effect on other people in my life in terms of, oh, you know, it's like I'm starting to actually, 
understand better and you know be able to be more kind <laughs> you know it's just uh, and even my stepmother who the first retreat I did she was convinced I was getting brainwashed she was you know she she was into like everybody was communist I mean she she was kind of troubled um, and she just hated I was involved in um, this but then she started meeting my friends and one time as I drove away with, from, with some friends she started crying and she said you have such nice friends so it's like that it's it's the behavior that actually does start to change you know this isn't about um, just unconditional acceptance and then not witnessing that we actually do start to hopefully understand more and change more and be more forgiving or you know it's like it's not it's not something you rush but it's definitely um, it's worth the it's definitely worth the suffering that ends suffering so let's sit for a minute Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.